there. I don't know. But <laughs> listen, we're, uh, we're thrilled that you're here. And uh, as Josh said, we're kicking off this uh, new series today. Um, I was gone last week. Uh, you all had given me the, the privilege of allowing me to pray for you. And so uh, two Sundays ago, I had asked everyone that was here to write on a, uh, a note card, a little three by five card, to write one prayer request that I could pray for you. And um, that was a huge privilege to do that. And um, it was a great blessing to do that. It was very interesting to do that. And, um, and really to be able to go before the Lord on your, on your behalf uh, was a great it was a great blessing for me. And so thank you for your vulnerability there. Thank you for entrusting me uh, with a number of things going on in your life. We need help. We need encouragement. We, we, life is too hard to walk it alone. And I, and I hope that you'll keep asking other people to pray for the things that you asked me to pray for. Uh, because you, you need that, and, and it's a great encouragement. Uh, part of my time away as well as I was studying the Sermon on the Mount, and that's what we're beginning here today. Uh, this Sermon on the Mount series for us is going to be a nine-week series, and uh, we're going to look at just a little bit uh, each week and walk through this. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, St. Augustine was the first person to call it the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, the reason comes from verse 1, where it says, Seeing the crowds... Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. A lot of people point out that just like Moses went up to the mountain to hear from God, Jesus went up to the mountain to speak as God. And so then we have in these next few chapters, these just recording of some of Jesus' most famous teaching. Now, before we dive into the passage that Josh read this morning, uh, which are called the Beatitudes, these blessings... I just want to tell you why this Sermon on the Mount by Jesus matters. This is a really important series uh, for us as a church. This is an important series for you as a follower of Christ. I hope that as much as you can, you'll be here week after week, that when you miss, you'll listen on the podcast or watch the video because this is a really important uh, section of scripture that we need to hear from Jesus about. It's important for a few reasons. The first reason it's important is because the Sermon on the Mount describes the way that the world perceives Christianity. Let me give you a few phrases that I think probably almost everybody in your life has heard. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Ever heard that? Judge not, lest you be judged. Ever heard that? That's one that your non-Christian friends like to tell you a lot. Hey, hey, don't judge me. Uh, what about this? Go the extra mile. Boy, that person really went the extra mile. You know what? Second mile, that would be a good name for a church. <laughs> it's actually what our church used to be called before redemption. Or turn the other cheek. Right? These are all things that have just seeped into Western culture. They're things that whether you have any faith background or not, you've heard those phrases. And it's interesting because the Sermon on the Mount has so influenced kind of a Judeo-Christian Western culture that it's pervasive whether people know it or not. And so when you have friends and you have neighbors and you have people at work and you have people that interact with your kids or grandkids and they learn that you're a Christian, I hope you know this, they're evaluating you. As much as they would like for you to judge not lest they be judged, like they're doing it. They're evaluating it. And they're not just evaluating you, they're evaluating Christianity in light of you. And when they're thinking about it, they're thinking, does this person live the way Jesus taught people to live? Now listen, here's the, here's the thing. They've likely never cracked a Bible or read this Sermon on the Mount. 
but they know enough about what Jesus has taught. Love your neighbor as yourself. Do unto others as you'd have them do to you. They, they know that just because they're part of a Western culture that's been shaped by the sermon. So they're evaluating you in light of this sermon. So you need to hear it. You need to actually learn it. You need to actually study it. And more than just learn it and study it, you need to begin to apply it. Because when people start to say, you know what, they say they're a Christian, but they don't seem like they live like a Christian. What they're saying, even though they don't know it, this is the irony here, they're saying they don't really live out the Sermon on the Mount. See, you need to know how to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Here's another reason why we need this series is because this series represents, this sermon by Jesus, Matthew 5 through 7, represents Jesus' vision for life right side up. Right, we often look at the world and you look at all the pain and all the turmoil and all the conflict and you go, man, this world is just turned upside down. And it is. And Jesus, in this sermon, gives us his vision for life turned right side up. It, it, you actually read uh, back in Matthew chapter 4, if you have your Bible, turn back to Matthew chapter 4 and look at verse 17. Uh, prior to this, if you have a Bible that, that has Jesus' words in red letters, you'll, you'll see a few red letters before this, most of which are Jesus at the beginning of chapter 4 uh, talking to the devil as the devil's tempting him. But then in chapter 4, verse 17, we really get the beginning of Jesus' message to the people, message to the world. And here's his message, Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent means turn around, do a 180, change your whole approach to thinking, change your mind. Repent, why? Because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. God's reign and God's rule has broken into history, Jesus is saying. It's here, it's close, it's imminent. So Jesus is saying, I'm the king and this kingdom has come and then the next thing he says is in verse 19 of chapter 4. He finds a few people walking by the Sea of Galilee, and he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So the two things that Jesus says to the people before the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew is, repent, the kingdom of God's at hand, and follow me. Now get this, the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining how to do those two things. He's explaining what repentance, what turning, what having a change of thinking and a change of life is about in light of his kingdom. That's what he's explaining. And he's explaining in the Sermon on the Mount what it is to follow him. This is, you could say, Jesus' a party platform. Jesus is the king. That's a political role. He's saying there's a kingdom and it's here. And he's articulating in this sermon his platform. It's interesting just as you watch the election and uh, boy, isn't it fun these days? Uh, not really. And what you have, especially with the two major party candidates, is neither one of them has much of a platform other than the other person's worse. And so Jesus here gives his platform. And it's not about that. It's saying, this is what I'm about. This is what the kingdom of God is like. This is the world turned right side up. And if you long for a world turned right side up, if you look at the world that's turned upside down, you go, man, I don't, when is this ever going to get better? You need Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Another reason that we need this, this is the last reason I'll mention here this morning, is that the Sermon on the Mount really is a mirror for the church. It's a mirror for the church. 
It's a mirror for the church because it's giving us this, this lifestyle of the king. And it begs the question, are we living in line with the kingdom of God? Uh, as we get into this series, one of the things you'll see is that there's a lot of commands Jesus gives, a lot of different things. And, and some people have thought, man, this is just a new set of burdensome laws that I can't keep. In fact, uh, Sinclair Ferguson is a Scottish uh, pastor and commentator, and here's what he says about this Sermon on the Mount. He says, many see it, see the Sermon on the Mount, as a message calculated to produce the greatest possible guilt in the fewest possible chapters. Right, and that what you typically think, yeah, that's what the Bible's about, that's what church is about, just how much guilt can we get in the shortest amount of time? He says, but the sermon is not aiming to produce a sense of hopelessness and despair in us, rather it is intended to set before us a glorious vision of what the Lord intends our lives to become. The sermon is Jesus' manifesto. It describes, I love this phrase, it describes a regal lifestyle, a royal lifestyle, the new behavior pattern for the kingdom we have entered. So the, king, the, the, the Sermon on the Mount is this mirror that we hold up to ourselves and go, am I living the regal lifestyle? Am I living like the king? This is describing the ethics, the morals, the values of the king who reigns in this kingdom. Does my life reflect that? See, it's very easy for us, isn't it, to, to look at the world and bash the world for its darkness? Man, they just, everything's messed up. They don't, they forget about God. They, sexuality's all out of whack. People mistreat each other, divorce, abuse, blah, blah, blah. And it's all really bad. It is. But you know what? It's a lot easier for the church and for Christians to just bash the world than it is to actually hold the word of God up like a mirror and say, am I living in line with the kingdom of God? So one of the things I wanna urge you to resist throughout this series is that kind of elbowing your neighbor or that way of thinking that goes, oh, I wish so-and-so was here to hear this. When you think that, think, I'm here to hear this. That's what this is about. Helping us to live a royal, regal lifestyle. And uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a Welsh pastor in the mid-1900s, and he said that this sermon, really living it, is the first step toward the church really experiencing revival. Here's what he said. He said, I'm never tired of saying that what the church needs to do is not to organize evangelistic campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. If she did that, men and women would be crowding into our buildings. So the first step to revival is this, living in light of Jesus' right side up kingdom, and that's the way we're gonna be evaluated by the world. All right, so that's kind of just an overview of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. What we launch into this morning is this section called the Beatitudes. The word Beatitudes means the blessings. So it's a description of a lot of blessings. And really in this first section, as he does throughout this whole s sermon that Jesus gives, Jesus is basically answering the question, what is the, the good life? Right? We have that question, don't we? What's the good life? What's, and, and we mean it, we could mean it two different ways, right? One way you could mean is, what's the enjoyable life? What's the fulfilling life? 
What's the satisfying life? What's the life that's gonna bring me joy and fulfillment and happiness, right? That's the good life. Jesus talks about that in this sermon. You could also think of the good life as what's the right life? What's the moral life? What's the, the life that God approves of? And he talks about that as well. But this morning, he's talking really about that first kind of good life. He's saying, let me tell you what the good life really is. Okay, so let me ask you a question. And students, I need you to think about this too because you guys have experienced this. If someone came to you and they said, oh my gosh, I am so blessed. Or if you read on their social media, hashtag blessed. <laughs> and that was all you knew, right? The conversation there ended. They didn't tell you why they felt like that. They didn't tell you why they were saying that. They didn't tell you why they were using that hashtag. They just said, oh my gosh, I'm so blessed. Use your imagination with me. What probably just happened in their life? What are they talking about? Why are they saying, I'm blessed? Think about it for a moment. All right, turn to your neighbor, tell them, what, what they what, really do this. Tell your neighbor, what, what do you think? What kind of things are they saying? All right, come back. Then we're going to get you back. Come back here. All right. So shout out to me, what kinds of things is the person who just said, hashtag blessed? What are they saying? What just happened to them? They got good things. What's that? They got a million dollars. That, yeah, that'd be, that'd be how they think it. What else? What's that? They got prayers answered. What else? They got a bike? Like a really cool bike, like a motorcycle? Yeah, I guess. Yeah, over here. They're a new believer? Yeah, that could be, that could be something. They know the love of God. They got an A on a math test. That's good, Macy. Yes. See, I think it could be some of these, oh, I'm so loved by God. I think a lot of times, though, the, way they would, the reason they'd say I'm so loved by God is because of some sort of comfort that they've experienced. Oftentimes material, right? I just got a raise. I just got a new job. We just had this great vacation. We just had this amazing time of laughter with our family. I just am put in this role where I have all this influence. Hashtag blessed, right? That's what we think of as the good life, the blessed life. It's materially rich. It's circumstantially easy. It's relationally blissful. That's the blessed life. That's the American dream. And Jesus comes in and says, no, it's actually the opposite. In fact, the opposite is the title of my favorite Seinfeld episode. Uh, I don't know how many of you are into Seinfeld, but if you, if you get a chance, you should type in Seinfeld the opposite into YouTube, and you can watch a scene where George Costanza uh, Jerry's loser friend realizes that, that every decision he's ever made in life has been wrong. Every instinct he has, every flinch he takes is, is wrong. And so he, he decides, I think I'm going to start to do the opposite. And so uh, wise George Costanza, here's what he says. He says, I will do the opposite. I used to sit here and do nothing and regret it for the rest of the day. So now I will do the opposite 
and I will do something. And so then he notices that this girl across the restaurant is looking at him. He says, I can't go talk to her. He says, wait, I need to do the opposite. And so he walks up to her and he says this, my name is George, I'm unemployed, I live with my parents. (laughs) And she says, I'm Victoria, hi. Right, and they build this great relationship, right? It's the opposite. And, and I just, I love the just how, how humorous that is. And there's a sense in which Jesus actually is tapping into some George Costanza wisdom here. And he's saying, listen, every instinct you have of what is truly blessed, it's not. I'm not saying it's bad, but the ultimate in the blessed life, the ultimate in my good for you, let me tell you what it is. And so that's what we have here in the Beatitudes, these pronouncements of divine favor. Here are the things that I love. Here are the things that God gets excited about. Here are the things that are truly blessed. Now, before we dive into the specifics of them, I want to just make two kind of general uh, things we have to keep in mind as we look at these. First, all Christians are to aim at being like these Beatitudes. So get this, what we're going to look at here in just a moment, this is not just for the spiritual Navy SEALs. This is not just for the pastors and the missionaries and the really rah-rah for God, Jesus freak people. This is for anyone who says, Jesus is my Lord, I want to be part of his kingdom. So all of us are to be like this, to strive to have our lives model and follow the life of Jesus in this way. Here's the next thing we need to see is that none of these things describe natural tendencies. These are all very much the opposite of how we think and how we feel and how we live. So with that background, let's go ahead and look at the Beatitudes. We find them Uh, Really, in verses 2 to 10, uh, verses 11 and 12 are kind of an explanation, a magnification of verse uh, 10. And uh, Jesus is going to describe the blessed life. Now, what I want to do for each of these different uh, beatitudes of Jesus is I, I thought of what would the kingdom of the world say is the blessed life? What does Jesus say is the blessed life? So that's what we're going to do. We're going to just kind of look at each of these beatitudes through the lens of what does the world say is blessed? What does Jesus say is blessed? So first, the, the world says this, blessed are the self-confident for they can accomplish anything. You got to believe it and you can achieve it. You got to be self-confident. You got to be self-assured. We got to constantly tell our kids, you're so great. You're so great. That painting's the best. You're amazing at soccer. You're such a good diver. No, you really stink. But we got to tell you you're awesome because if we don't tell you how awesome you are all the time, you won't have self-esteem. You won't have self-confidence. And if you don't have self-confidence, you won't accomplish anything. That's the kingdom of the world. Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. Here's what Jesus says, verse two, or I'm sorry, verse three. This is the way he begins this whole sermon. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, not, no, 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 not blessed are the self-confident. Blessed are those who are so strong. No, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Blessed are those who look inward and find nothing. This is uh, not like a poor, like, you know, the poor person with a big screen TV and a cell phone plan. <laughs> this is like India slum poor that Jesus is describing. Blessed is the totally bankrupt, totally broken. I look at my, my, my moral strength. I look at my power. I look at my goodness and I find nothing there. Jesus says, that's the blessed life. Because when you look and you see yourself as poor in spirit, you realize I have no hope and you turn to the one who actually has true riches, which is Jesus. And as you do that, you experience the kingdom of heaven. That's why he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now get this, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't uh, encourage one another. Doesn't mean we shouldn't express gratitude or compliments to one another. We absolutely should. God uses that. But what it does mean is that what we need more than anything, the way Jesus starts this whole thing is to say, God, my resources are insufficient. I need you. If you don't begin there, you won't live a truly blessed life. Now, I want to just apply this for a moment, especially in light of the prayer requests that I had the privilege of praying for you these last couple weeks. And again, I'm so thankful to you. Some, some of you uh, were just incredibly vulnerable and, and trusting me with those. Some of you even putting your names on things. And, and uh, it was a great privilege to pray for you. And what I noticed as I... Uh, as I went through those cards, and I, I happened to pick one of the most well-attended days of our year, so it was a big stack of cards. And as I went through that, I, I realized, wow, there's a lot of hurt here in this church. There's a lot of pain. I'll bet if you put all the prayer requests into like a word cloud, the biggest word that would have showed up was healing. And not mostly physical healing, though that was some part of the request, pray for healing with cancer or healing with the, but mostly it was healing of relationships. Healing of a relationship between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law or a husband and a wife or a person and their adult kids or all kinds of healing, healing of the past, healing over all kinds of hurts. We're a hurting people, right? And we clean up well, we look good. They're pretty nice cars in the parking lot for the most part. And you drive into our houses and they're pretty well manicured. They look together. But just because the houses are pretty doesn't mean everything's okay. And here's what I wondered. This was just one of the things that was so on my heart as I was praying through these. Is I wondered, does anybody else know that this person needs prayer in this way? Have they told anyone else? Because I went through these prayer requests and I thought, how is it possible that after the service we say, hey, if you have anything going on in your heart, we have men and women from our prayer team, they would love to stick around and pray for you. How is it that there are not lines of people waiting to pray with those folks? Because I know the hurts are there. I know the pain's there. I know the sense of, God, I need your help here. God, I need your healing here. God, I need you to restore my marriage here. God, I need you to do what only you can do. I know that that's out here. 
And yet I wonder, how often do we just keep those needs to ourselves? And maybe we pray them to God, maybe we don't. Maybe we just hold on to them. And what I want to invite you to is to be poor in spirit. To not say, well, I just got to be more confident. I just got to be tougher. I just need more grit. I'll just get through it. It'll be fine. I don't need help. No! No, that's the opposite of what Jesus says is the blessed life. The blessed life is come to me. Let me bear your burdens. Cast your anxieties on me because I care for you. Be poor in spirit. So I would encourage you, if, if you wrote something on that card, if you even remember what you wrote, and you haven't ever asked anyone else, hey, would you pray for me about this? Someone that has a relationship in your daily life. Would you do that? Would that maybe be your first step of obedience in seeking to be poor in spirit? To say, I'm going to humble myself before a friend I trust and say, I don't have the resources. I'm not rich enough spiritually. I need God's help. Jesus says, if you do that, it's a blessed life. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, the next uh, beatitude that we would say in the world is we would say this, blessed are the excited for they're doing awesome. <laughs> right, I actually, I actually know a guy who's a business guy and, and I said, how are you doing? He said, awesome. I said, whoa, like, good for you. Like, wow, why? And he's like, well, I just went to the seminar where they said that when people ask how you're doing, you should say awesome because it's like really energizing. <laughs> okay. You got my attention, you know, so. So you go, oh, blessed are the excited. They're doing awesome. They don't have any problems. Oh, yeah, look, just look at their Instagram. I mean, it is hashtag blessed. <laughs> and Jesus says, no. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. See, because what happens when you mourn is you've experienced loss. You've experienced pain. You've experienced something or someone that was dear to you that isn't close to you in the same way. It's a painful thing. It's a hurtful thing. A lot of times, the wounds that come that we have to mourn never quite get healed. The hole never quite gets filled. And it's in those moments where we're tempted to think, God's forgotten me. Look, this is evidence. God doesn't care. I'm not blessed. I'm cursed. And Jesus says, no, it's just the opposite. Because blessed are you when you mourn. Blessed are you when you allow the, the reality that sin has broken this world and it's caused pain and death. Blessed are you when you mourn over that. Whether it's mourning your own sin or mourning the loss of somebody important in your life, blessed are you when you do that. Actually, God is close to you. It says in Psalm 34 that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Which means, when we think, oh, God's walked away, no, he's actually drawing near. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Next, we think, blessed are those who do what they have to do to triumph, or do what they have to do to win, for they are unstoppable. 
You know what? The end justifies the means. Blessed are those who take no prisoners. Blessed are those who never stop. Blessed are those who don't let any obstacle get in their way. Blessed are those who do what they have to do, say what they have to say to win. Yeah, you go get them. Jesus says, no, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek, that word means gentle. It means humble. It means low. Now get this, some of you might just think, well, you said, wait a minute, you said that none of these come natural. Well, I'm kind of a gentle soul. Okay, I get that. We have, there's personality differences. Jesus is talking about something entirely different. Jesus is talking about a kind of meekness, especially in the face of opposition, and that's not natural. You may be able to have your mouth shut and keep quiet because you just have more self-control than me and everyone else, but inside you rage. Some of the most quiet people are some of the most angry people. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, the truly gentle in spirit. Those who don't have to have their way. Those who don't have to win every time. Those who don't have to be right. Those who don't have to make the point. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now think about this. Inheriting the earth. Is there anything that's more winning than that? Like in the long stretch of history, this is yours. Okay, you win, actually. Right, this is just like Jesus says elsewhere. He says the, the last will be first. The first will be last. We say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for success, for they will get it. We've got to be successful. We've got to win. We've got to triumph. We've got to make money. We've got to raise good kids. We've got to get them in good schools. We've got to success, success, success. Now, here's the thing. If you hunger and thirst for success, here's, here's the good news. You'll get it, right? If you work hard, if you take advantage of the networks of relationship and the opportunities you have, if you, if you dream it and if you have the resources, you can, you can get there. But Jesus says that's too low of an aim, to just hunger for success in a material way. No, Jesus says this, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who when they wake up in the morning, they're going, oh Lord, give me more righteousness. Get, and that word righteousness is, is an, also be translated justice. It has the idea of doing what's right in the world. It has the idea of relationships that are right, right? We, we, we know this from the, the whole biblical story. And students, you looked at the biblical story on, on Friday night, one story. And what you may have heard there is that in that uh, biblical story, when we were created, God created us in right relationship with himself, with others, with his creation, and even with ourselves. That was broken by sin. Adam and Eve sinned and the relationship with God was hurt. They started blaming each other. The ground was cursed. They started hiding and feeling insecure. Jesus is saying, I'm gonna turn that right side up. And so if you will hunger and thirst for righteousness, for God's world to be made right, restored to its originally blessed relationships, if you hunger and thirst for that, you'll be satisfied. Here's kind of an interesting point. Jesus seems to be saying, whatever you really hunger and thirst for, you'll get it. Hunger and thirst for success, you'll get it. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, you'll get it. And it asks the question to us as followers of Christ, what are we hungry for? 
Amen. We're hungry for Jesus. So pursue him. You'll be satisfied. We say this in the world, blessed are those who get even, for nobody can push them around. You know what? I don't get mad. I get even. And I show them. Okay? Jesus says the opposite. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are those who can absorb the sin of others in a forgiving, gracious way, for they'll receive that same mercy. We say this from verse 8, blessed are those who look good, for they will impress others. Right? We care a lot about the outward appearance. How, what kind of clothes? What kind of style? What's your weight? How do you look? Are you strong? Are you healthy? How, how, blessed are those who look good. Blessed are those who look righteous. Right? How many people don't really care about really being righteous? They just want to look righteous. That's how I was as a kid. Students, when I was your age, uh, many of you, you know, junior high and early in high school, I thought I was a Christian. I wasn't. And here's how I know. Before I became a Christian, I wanted to look righteous. After I became a Christian, I wanted to be righteous. The world says, hey, just look good. Keep up appearances. Make sure everything looks okay. Jesus says this. No, verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Not blessed are those who want to look pure, but blessed are those who are pure. Blessed are those who have had their sins washed by Jesus, who continually repent and believe and trust in him. The reward of that, Jesus says, is they will see God. That's an amazing thing. Right, nobody sees God in the Bible. Jesus says, you, you have a pure heart. You love the Lord with all your heart, and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. You'll see God. The world says this, blessed are those who stir up the action for they get lots of attention. You know, they get their 15 minutes and they create their controversy and they get the, you know, attention. Kids, you know this. I, I talk to even just my elementary age daughters and, and there is no lack of drama, right? <laughs> blessed are the drama queens for they shall get lots of attention. <laughs> and here's the thing. If you aim at that, you'll get it. You'll get it. Jesus says, I, I, I don't want you to think that way. I don't want you to be the instigator. I don't want you to be the, the one always poking, right? This is, this is talking to myself, right? I love to just poke. Well, what about this? Poke. Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not blessed are those who stir up the action. Blessed are, verse nine, the peacemakers, for they shall be sons of God. Get this, Jesus isn't saying, blessed are the conflict avoiders for they shall have peace. No. He says, blessed are the peacemakers, those who enter into the fray, right? This is what Jesus does, right? There is hostility between us and God, and Jesus comes as a peacemaker. Jesus gets involved in the mess, not to instigate it further, but to bring healing, to bring reconciliation, to bring hope. Jesus is the ultimate peacemaker. So he says, when you follow in this way, when you're a person who looks at tense relationships, that looks at broken dynamics, when you move into that, even when you get some you know, hurt in the midst of it, when you move into that peacemaking role, what does he say? You're a son of God. Why? Because you're imitating the son of God. Blessed are the peacemakers. 
Finally, we think this, blessed are the safe, for they will be comfortable. We make countless decisions because this to us is the blessed life. Safe, secure, no worries. Blessed are the safe, blessed are the secure, blessed are those who have all their needs met, for they will be comfortable. Again, Jesus says, no, it's the opposite. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, another place, just like mourning, when you're persecuted, when people are coming against you, when people are critical of you, when you lose a promotion opportunity, when you maybe even lose a job opportunity, or when you have family members that say, if you're going to be one of those Jesus freaks, I can't be part of this anymore. When you experience that persecution, you think, God, where are you? God, you left. God, what happened? And Jesus says, hey, at that moment, yours is the kingdom of heaven. And he bracketed kingdom of heaven with blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And he goes on to explain it in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You know the first command of the Sermon on the Mount is there in verse 12. Do you know what it is? Rejoice and be glad. When you experience pain, when you experience loss, when you experience people coming against you, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Find your joy in me. Find your hope in my kingdom. Find your purpose in a longer term perspective. This is the truly blessed life. Just a few final observations that I think we need to make and then we'll respond First, I hope you see this, that these blessings require short-term pain and result in long-term joy. Think about this. You can't be poor in spirit unless you truly have nothing good in you that merits you before God. That's a painful thing to realize. To say, no matter what my mommy told me, I'm actually a bad person. When that hits you, and you actually begin to realize, I'm worse than I ever thought. That's painful. But you don't get to be poor in spirit unless you experience that pain. Or mourning. You can't mourn without loss. You can't be, have the blessing of God's comforting you in the midst of loss unless you experience the pain of loss. You can't be merciful without being wronged. You can't be a peacemaker unless there's turmoil. So we want to just avoid all pain. And what Jesus wants to do is he says, listen, the path to true, long-term, eternal blessing, eternal divine favor is not the avoidance of short-term pain, but it's actually embracing it, knowing that it leads to your long-term joy. Knowing that, I am faithful, I will reward you, I will honor you. This beatitude is the life I've lived and when you follow in my path, it will be blessed. Another observation we need to realize here is that your reaction to these beatitudes reveals your heart. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who I quoted earlier, he actually says, 
Uh, the, the, the thoughts you have when you read these Beatitudes are one of the things that indicate whether you're actually a Christian. Do you read these Beatitudes? Poor in spirit, mourn, meek, hunger and thirst for righteousness, pure in heart, persecuted. Do you read that and go, that's dumb. If you do, your heart's not yet in line with the kingdom of God. You might not be a Christian. If, on the other hand, you look at it and you go, wow, that's really hard. I don't think I could do that, but I want to. This really is the blessed life. This really is a better way to go. Then that's probably an indication that God's at work in you. You're beginning to see things through his values, through his lenses. Here's the last thing that we've got to see, and we've got to remember this throughout this whole series, is that only Jesus perfectly fulfills these beatitudes. Right? You will drive yourself into the ground if you think that these beatitudes are your way of earning God's favor. Jesus is saying throughout this whole sermon, no, no, no. If you have God's favor, which you do, because of what I've done, now live in this way. So it's not live this way to get God's favor. It's you have God's favor, so live this way. And why do we have God's favor? Is that just because, well, of course God had to love us? No! We have God's favor because even though we did everything away according to the kingdom of the world, even though we had all the values of the sinful world system, Jesus came in and he was the one who was poor in spirit. He was the one who mourned. He was the one who was meek. He was the one who more than any of us hungered and thirsted for righteousness. He was the one who was merciful. He was absolutely pure in heart. He was a peacemaker, a reconciler. And he, it was anyone ever more persecuted for righteousness sake than Jesus? So, so here's what that means. That means we seek to live this out. We seek to walk in the power of these beatitudes. But it means we let our failure drive us to faith. We don't just try to heap on guilt and feel bad and go, oh, I'll try to do better. We let our failure drive us to faith in Christ, to trusting in Christ, to saying, yes, Jesus, you're the one who's lived this way. You've died so that my sins could be forgiven and your righteousness could be counted for me. Help me get going again. Help me to see that you reveal the truly blessed life. Let's pray.